how about your pronunciation of benzyl isoquinolinium? Is it quinolinium? <laughs> Quin, quino, quinolinium. What, what, what was I saying? Quinolonium, you said. Ah, oh, lol. Sorry. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, we're keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome to ABC's Anesthesia and in this series we're going to go through a few of the more basic things on your way to work you could listen to this and hopefully get a bit of an insight into some of the you know easy stuff from each of the different topics physiology pharmacology um, and practical anesthetic stuff so Hi. I'm Lahiru my name's Kaz and we're going to talk about medications and anesthesia in this series but we'll start with muscle relaxants uh, obviously mm. one of the most common drugs or group of drugs that you're ever going to use and really very specialized anesthetics. There's not many other groups in the hospital that use these drugs. They're extremely dangerous. Uh, and, and it's really worth you knowing this in detail. Now, uh, so Kaz has you know, really, relatively recently done his part one, and I did my part one quite a few years ago. But the amount of knowledge you need to know for your part one is incredible. It's, it's, it's a bit ridiculous. But for day-to-day practice to make your make you know, clinically relevant, safe decisions, I don't think you actually need that much in-depth information. And so hopefully we'll try to give you a few examples of what we believe are the most important points about each of these drugs. And we'll have a chat about our experiences and you know things that have happened in general terms with these. And again, the usual disclaimer, take none of this as specific advice for any patient. Please consult your, consult, consult your consultant uh, when <laughs> making these decisions. <laughs> like what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of wordplay. Love it. Yep. yep. Excellent. Uh, so... Yeah, so I guess to start off with Lahiru, so um, um, you know, let, let's start off with, with the bare bones. What is a muscle relaxant? Yeah, good. So really, this is a, a muscle paralytic agent. It acts on the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor uh, at the neuromuscular junction at the post-junctional receptor, and that blocks transmission. So imagine the nerve uh, transmission occurs; it releases acetylcholine into that end plate into the neuromuscular junction, but these little acetylcholine molecules cannot attach to the nicotinic receptor. And that way there's no propagation. Um, that said, there's two kinds. There's depolarizing and non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. One in common use depolarizing is succinamethonium. And you know this will be one of those drugs that you'll use reasonably often, but it has all of these side effects and crazy things that, ha- that happen. Now, the fact that it's depolarizing means it actually does attach to that nicotinic acetylcholine receptor and it causes the muscles to contract and vesiculate but it doesn't actually get off that receptor Um, and one of those reasons why you know succinylcholine and succinamethonium is literally just two acetylcholine molecules you know brought together so it's Mm. exactly similar to the you know the the um, structure of acetylcholine whether the exactly. non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, which, you know, if we run through the brocuronium, matricurium, cisatricurium, um, mivacurium, as well as vecuronium, um, there might be a few others, but these are the ones that would be most commonly available in your hospital. These are non-depolarizing. They attach to that receptor and they don't allow any acetylcholine to go on. So they don't cause fasciculations. Uh, the muscles just aren't able to be able to be contracted. Excellent. Yeah. So I think the key point there is, um, you know, depolarizing of the postsynaptic membrane or non-depolarizing. And I think if you think about your pharmacology from med school, we can also broadly classify these into, you know, an agonist um, neuromuscular blocker and an antagonist neuromuscular blocker. So saxomethonium is an agonist because um, it binds and activates and holds that receptor in the activated state and keeps a, um, the postsynaptic membrane depolarized. 
And then you have the non-depolarizing agents, which are antagonists and they're competitive antagonists because they compete with acetylcholine for that receptor. So as a um, general structure of neuromuscular blockers, so broadly we classify them into depolarizing and non-depolarizing. So within depolarizing, we have saxomethonium or saxomethylcholine as the predominant as, as a main agent that is being currently used. And then within non-depolarizing, we can further delineate that to um, aminosteroids and benzyl isoquinolonians, and these are so named because of their structure. So the two common aminosteroids that we use are rocuronium and vecuronium. Um, and then the two common benzyl isoquinolonians you need to know are atricurium and cisatricurium. There are other other agents that we just don't use anymore um, in Australia very often, but you'll learn them for the exam. Now, how do you choose your muscle rack? Like, like, okay, let's, let's, let's ask, what is your favorite muscle rack? And which one would you go to time and time again for most of your elective operations? Yeah, so elective operations in a non, uh, with no uh, risks of aspiration. I think vecuronium is probably my favorite drug. Yep, excellent. And um, actually, I've, I've started using that almost routinely for my elective procedures, which is really strange because for the first, I don't know, since 2007, when I first started as a resident doing, you know, doing anesthetics, I, I, I never used it. And then re- literally in the last three or four years, I, I used vecuronium routinely. It's, it's almost become a thing that I think in our hospital, that that's, that's the go-to, I think it has a relatively low anaphylaxis rate compared to the others and even a low anaphylactoid rate. So yeah, really, really great drug to use for mm. all your cases. And so so why, why do you use it? Um, so I think some of the reasons you've outlined, so low anaphylaxis rate compared to rocuronium, um, which is kind of its brother drug, I guess, within that aminosteroid class, which we'll elaborate a bit on later. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so the low anaphylaxis rate, it can be reversed with sugamidex in the event of an emergency or a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario. Um, and it doesn't have, I guess, the uh, some of the contraindications of the benzyl isoquinolonium group, which is the histamine release. Um, the downside, which I don't really think is a downside, is that it needs to be reconstituted. Um, it, you know, that's ten seconds I can spare. Um, but I think I think really what drove me towards vecuronium the most last year was when I actually saw a rocuronium anaphylaxis. Um, and, you know, this, this is a controversial topic that is, I think, very much in the part two area about, um, you know, how reliable the data is and what the, what the evidence is. But I think vecuronium has a low anaphylaxis rate. That's, that's essentially not disputed. Um, and I think if you can reduce the patient's risk of an adverse event without compromising their quality of care, then I think that's something that definitely should be considered. So, um, the downside, I guess, is for the next we'll talk about is, you know, it is relatively slower onset. The textbooks often say it takes about, um, you know, uh, about two minutes to, to two to three minutes to have onset. But if you use a neuromuscular um, monitor, it's actually a fair bit longer than that. So, Oh, well, that's why I disagree that because a neuromuscular monitor is measuring the slowest um, receptors being blocked, which is your adductor pollicis, whereas your, you know, your larynx, which you need to be blocked, will be blocked far sooner. So. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm completely okay with neuromuscular monitor taking a little bit longer and still yeah. taking the three minutes. But, yeah. So, so what you'll find, so, so vecuronium seems to be both of our kind of go-tos for elective procedures, 0.1 milligram per kilogram as your kind of loading, loading dose. So it comes in a 10 milligram vial. So you'd probably give anywhere from like six to 10 milligrams 
for the initial and then follow up if you're losing relaxation and the surgeon needs it, maybe giving another two or four milligrams uh, as you need. So, so that's vecuronium. It would be very safe for you to go for that for most of your elective procedures. How about like, so we'll, how about atricurium and cisatricurium? Like what, what makes you use either of those? So the benzyl isoquinolonium groups are, you know, really what, what they have going for them is their organ independent metabolism. So they can metabolize by uh, plasma cholinesterases and Hoffman degradation to varying degrees. Um, and these are independent of your hepatic and your renal function. Mm. Um, so these are really useful in patients with, um, with end-stage renal failure. Um, and because of that organ independent metabolism, they have really reliable offset. Whereas with, um, rock and vec, you can be sometimes, you know, up to about 20 to 30 minutes variation in your offset times, depending on the patient and the organ dysfunction. Let's say, let's give a scenario. Uh, if I have any kind of severe organ dysfunction and maybe I can't use Sigamidex, I'm a bit worried about using it to reverse the others, then I, I can use Atricurium for you know, it's pretty much the same onset time. A lot of these are similar onsets. So three to minute, three minutes with a 0.6 milligram per kilogram induction dose. So again, to give it into practical terms, roughly about the whole 50 milligrams is what you need for induction. And then I'd give, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 as, as needed throughout the procedure. Uh, onset's three minutes, lasts again about 30 minutes, same as vecuronium, 30 to 40 minutes. Um, and organ independence. So I can be very comfortable that it will reverse. And it has a low anaphylaxis rate, but it does cause histamine release. So you might get a flush patient. You might get these anaphylactoid type reactions. So you can never be completely certain uh, that it's going to be completely safe. Um, just, just on that, uh, do you want to elaborate on what you mean by anaphylaxis and anaphylactoid? Oh, yeah, that's right. So anaphylaxis is, you know, type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, IgE mediated, uh, where you get mast cell degranulation once the antigen is exposed to these, you know, mast cells with their antibody. And um, yeah, it's a massive whole body response. It can be very severe. Whereas if you have um, an aphylactoid reaction, it's direct degranulation of mast cells and histamine release. So generally, it might still be very severe, uh, but generally speaking, it's not uh, immune mediated in the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. So generally speaking, it'll be less severe generally. That said, you know, I've heard of an anaphylactoid reaction being very severe. Uh, and sometimes the diagnosis of whether it's anaphylactic or anaphylactoid is, is it's really just arbitrary. You just treat as, as it is, you take the tryptase and maybe it's high, maybe you've got an error reading. It, it, it's all very unsatisfying with the diagnosis and mm -hmm. essentially you just treat it as badness. Mm. And there are case reports of people having anaphylaxis with to atricurium. Um, you know, you can have anaphylaxis reaction to anything. And there are some case reports where the um, testing has come back positive. So I think nothing is nothing is certain. Never say never. Um, these are all just relative probabilities. So all right, if you do get anaphylaxis, hopefully you've got a good team with you, consultant, nurse, team, and you get some practice at treating one of the most mm. common disasters you're going to have. And that will make you better for the next one. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, definitely. I've only seen one and I'm still terrified about doing a case independently and having one. Um, so it, I think, you know, the more experience you have, the better, obviously. Um, so Lahiri, if you have, if you have someone with asthma, for example, um, is there another type of benzyl you could use? I'm glad you asked. So yes, it looks, this atricurium is the, is an isomer, cis isomer of atricurium. It's again, non-organ dependent metabolism and a very, very, very low anaphylaxis rate. Now it's problems are that it's very slow onset. It's just a very 
potent drug, so 0.15 milligrams per kilogram, which pretty much means the onset's very slow. It might take you know, up to four or five minutes for its onset. So I think most people would rarely give that as your induction muscle relaxant. So again, you'd often see rocuronium use, atricurium use, vecuronium use for induction, but cisatricurium very uncommonly used, but it just takes so long uh, for, for, for the onset. Um, that said, the histamine release is you know, pretty much non-existent for that. So it's a very stable drug. If I had a patient who was anaphylac- had anaphylaxis to many, many drugs, maybe they had anaphylaxis to rocuronium previously or something, and now they needed an emergency operation and I didn't have the test results or it wasn't enough time for, an, uh, for allergy testing of, of any sort, and I really needed muscle relaxation, one of my options may be to use cisatricurium because it, hmm. chances are it's a very, very low anaphylaxis rate. Uh, that, might be a particular, that might be potentially controversial what I've said there, but uh, you know, I, th- I think the evidence is pretty good that it has a very low anaphylaxis rate. And in that specific circumstance of I don't have enough information, I would probably go to that. Hmm. It, it, I definitely agree. So it's, it's relatively safe, um, slow onset, but reliable offset and um, very stable in the, in the context of organ dysfunction. Um, yeah, you know, probably one of the safest drugs we can give, as you said. So I do agree. Ah, oh, one more thing to add. So when mm. would you use cisatricurium? Say after you've given sucks, if you want the patient paralyzed, I'd, I'd give cisatricurium at that point, because then, you know, you don't need any, you don't need to worry about the onset of cisatricurium, but also often in ICU for prolonged intubations or in, you know, doing prolonged cases, I would use cisatricurium for those prolonged cases as well. So, you know, you don't get the accumulation. So as an infusion is what I'm saying. So that's that's pretty much your relevant, so elective, so again, the context is elective operations. What muscle relaxant are you going to choose? We've kind of given you a little bit of an insight into the points of difference of each and why I'd use one over the other. Um, so how about rapid sequence induction? So you've got an aspiration risk patient. So either they've got some significant reflux or they haven't fasted in its emergency operation, lap appendicectomy, a bowel resection, uh, for small bowel obstruction or whatever it is the patient might aspirate and you need to get that tube in quickly with a rapid sequence induction. Uh, what are your options for muscle relaxation? Yeah. So, so I guess the purpose of a RSI is to reduce the time between sedation. So loss of the upper airway reflexes and attaining adequate intubating conditions. So you want to give high doses to attain intubating conditions as quickly as possible. So for this, the main thing is we want something that acts very quickly. So the drug we know that acts the quickest is, you know, succimethonium. So the, um, so a, RSI dose. Um, oh yeah, one point five milligrams per yeah, kilogram. Yeah, yeah, one to one point five milligrams per kilogram can give you, you know, intubating conditions within kind of thirty seconds, and you have a clear in in most patients a clear onset point where you get fasciculations. Um, and you should, you know, you then then at the at the end of the fasciculations, you, you can be relatively happy that you have adequate intubating conditions. Um, and the other option for that would be rocuronium, um, which is. Um, a drug with, so it's a, again, a non-depolarizing agent and the a normal dose is 0.6 milligrams per kilo for intubation. Um, and then an RSI dose would be doubled that at 1.2 milligrams per kilo. And this can achieve intubating conditions. Again, it, it varies, but generally it's said within kind of 60 seconds, mm-hmm. um, but always use an neuromuscular blocker to ensure you do have adequate conditions. So so those are kind of your two main options for and I've actually I've actually seen a study that showed that the yeah, a high dose rock, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, was actually faster than succinethonium. So at the right yeah, dose, 
it, and then this one study showed that it is faster. So really, whether you choose one or the other, speed doesn't need to be a factor, but definitely knowing that your endpoint of fasciculations means that the, the sucks has worked is, is can, you know, can be very reassuring for people in, when lots of other things are going on. Um, so definitely something you could, you could look into. Um, but what, why are the, like, there's a lot of, uh, I guess in current practice or just the practice that I've seen, uh, people have a lot of resistance to using succimethonium for many reasons. And um, it's one of those things where sometimes you just have to give it and it's very routine, but in other circumstances where you have an elective procedure, you may need to give sucks just for the LMA to sit well, but there's a lot of resistance to giving it because it does have so many complications. Um, what, what do you reckon about that? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, I think, you know, succimethonium was a mainstay of RSI for, for, you know, like a very long time before kind of rocuronium came around and started um, started taking taking over. So there are kind of very clear, like specific contraindications to succimethonium. So I guess, you know, the most obvious one is previous anaphylaxis to succimethonium or evidence of plasma cholinesterase um, polymorphism. And then also, rel- not I guess, kind of relative, but can be absolute depending on the severity is hyperkalemia. Mm-hmm. So if a patient's got renal failure acutely or they're unwell and they're hyperkalemic, um, everyone has a different degree of comfort doing this, but I think it's pretty defendable to not give succinamethonium in someone whose case, you know, yeah. um, above six or seven. The evidence is that you, you will get a rise of 0.5 millimoles per liter of potassium just by using sucks, which means that, you know, I would probably as, as my cutoff, I'd be cautious at any abnormal levels of potassium. So, mm. you know, 5.5 millimoles per liter and above, I'd be cautious about, I definitely would, I probably wouldn't use it above six uh, as an absolute knowing that I've got an extra, another drug available, rocuronium, I'd probably use rocuronium as soon as the potassium's odd. Yeah, but yeah. also, you know, if you have any patient now, th- these are some of those situations you hopefully never come under, but you, you hear about these cases. And I think we've, you know, working long enough in any hospital, this, these kind of cases will, will happen where well, you might have someone who is a burns patient. If they have burns to enough of their body after 20 to 48, 24 to 48 hours, and even up to maybe 12, even 18 months afterwards, you'll get all of these extra junctional receptors and you can go look at what these are. But essentially, it means that you'll have a whole lot more receptors in the muscle, which means that your potassium will rise greater than that 0.5, maybe above one or even two millimoles per liter, which could cause a hyperkalemic cardiac arrest at the end of your syringe, uh, which is very tricky. So think of that burns patient with uh, you know burns in in that kind of uh, you know 12 months to even 18 months period. You'd be very very cautious and uh, pro- pro- potentially avoid sucks, but also other neuromuscular conditions or critical care myopathy. So imagine that patient who's been bed bound in ICU for a very long time. And in some of our quaternary hospitals, this happens time and time again, sick patients just never seem to get out. And that patient coming back for an emergency operation later, you would definitely want to avoid sucks because they will also have extra junctional receptors. So very specific odd part about the hyperkalemic risk of sucks is burns, certain myopathies, especially critical care myopathy, uh, which may not be uh, spoken about. For example, mm-hmm. to get in more detail, you know, if, if you look up the history of a patient, you may realize that they've got some kind of myopathy because the medical diagnosis has that, but that won't be, but a critical care myopathy because they've been in ICU for six months, bed bound, that will not show up necessarily in your diagnostics. So you have to, you have to think about that. And I'm hoping by, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you'll maybe one day warn your boss or warn yourself against it and avoid a hyperkalemic, hyperkalemic arrest. Mm. 
Exactly. And another um, another case where that, that holds true is denervation injuries. So if you have a amputation or a denervation injury, you can also get upregulation of the um, abnormal type of nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So that's another one to add, but oh, no, very, very good, very good point. Commonly, commonly seen and commonly forgotten about if you don't have that patient demographic under your care generally. Yeah, so any upper motor neuron lesion causing this kind of mm-hmm. immobility. Um, so that's good. And then the final one is really, you, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, uh, uh deficiency, definitely a problem. You wouldn't, you generally wouldn't give sucks in that situation. Uh, it causes sucks apnea, which in a heterozygous mutation can last 10 minutes or a bit longer and the homozygous can last for hours and hours, but also the fact that this drug can cause malignant hyperthermia or MH. Uh, and so if they've had a history of MH, you definitely wouldn't use any volatile anesthetics. And you wouldn't use succimethonium as a, as a very potential trigger for MH. Yeah. And then I guess some of the rel- relative contraindications would be, um, you know, um, open globe injuries or any, any situations where there's high intracranial pressure. Um, succimethonium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's something that I, I, I feel like it's very historical as a theoretical thing that no, not many people would have that as a contraindication. So I'm really oh, interesting. Glad, yeah. So that's, yeah. That, that's definitely one of those part two questions that, comes up, but there's a theoretical risk of increased intraocular pressure, for example, but, you know, has this ever come out in actual studies? No, it's, you know, you, 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 there'll be, you know, definitely ask your consultants and see what the current opinion is. But I would say that, you know, plenty of people would be very comfortable using succinethonium, but it's only a very transient rise and the rise can be far worse with just blinking, for example. There you go. So the part one answer was um, that that's <laughs> that's true, and, and I would still continue to say that, but um, I didn't realize there was so much variability in, in real life. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, the other one was um, anaphylaxis. So um, succinethonium causes histamine release from mast cell degranulation. So anaphylaxis is um, pretty common. So I think the numbers vary between one in 2000 to about one in 7,000, depending on um, on the study. So just notably, it, it is it is in most reports much higher than rocuronium. Um, so it is probably the worst offender from of all neuromuscular blocking agents i keep forgetting to actually review the evidence on this because you know, at certain points i've heard that rocky uranium is worse and then sucks is worse uh, and to me i gotta say it's it's all in the ballpark of pretty pretty common uh, as yeah. far as our agents go chlorhexidine kefazolin and antibiotics and muscle relaxants are all very common and then rocket and sucks are the most of, common of those you know in, yeah. in my mind i have the, the realm of one in three thousand or five thousand but you know ballpark is good so yeah. Would you ever not use sucks because you're worried about anaphylaxis? Um, good question. I guess if there's any evidence of previous anaphylaxis to succinethonium, I think that's an absolute contraindication. Um, if there's no other evidence for it, I, I, I probably wouldn't wouldn't say so. Um, I think if they, yeah, I mean, if they're already at, having an anaphylaxis and you want to go tube in, I wouldn't add succinethonium into the mix because I think that would just complicate <laughs> matters. Um, I that don't know. Is there yeah. As in, if you had a, if you had enough laxes to a muscle laxant, then they'd be paralyzed, and you you just put the tube in. So that, hopefully yeah. that won't come up. <laughs> no, but it, yeah, that's that's the thing. Like I think if if the patient needs succinethonium for whatever reason, they and and this could be anything from they need a rapid sequence induction, or they just need a very short lasting muscle relaxant. For example, when you think of the ECT, the electroconvulsive therapy indication, we will often use sucks because it's the most practical drug to give when you really just need a short period of paralysis for the safety of the patient. And what that looks like is, you know, you give maybe some alfentanil, um, 
and then you give propofol, patient falls asleep, you give a, a, a you know a, de- a less dose of sucks, often anywhere from like 40, 50, sometimes 80 milligrams, but generally 50 milligrams is the average I've seen for ECT. And the patient recovers in approximately the time frame that the propofol wears off. And that it's just the right drug for that operation, mm. as well as you know any kind of laryngospasms. You know, giving giving sucks as your end solution at a smaller dose, even you know twenty to fifty micro, uh, milligrams is is still just a very good choice when you know you all you need to do is break the seal of mm. of the laryngospasm, and you don't need the patient paralyzed for a whole lot longer without any hypnotic on board. I think that's I think that's really good. So a mnemonic that I use for the primary exam for the adverse effects of sucks is um, sucks causes him immediate muscular pain. So I think about this as adverse effects of sucks methionine itself. So can intubate, can oxygenate, and the inability to reverse with sigamidex, um, and then sucks apnea, then the cardiovascular effects, which we didn't really talk about today, but these are due to the effects of the cardiac um, type two musculoskeletal receptors, and these are bradycardia and asystole. The hematological um, side effects of hyperkalemia, the immune side effects of histamine release and mast cell degranulation and anaphylaxis, and the muscle side effects. So we didn't really talk about this. This, I think, is a pretty soft um, relative side effect of myalgias, and this is common in kind of young uh, males and particularly those with kind of greater muscular build. Um, And also within muscle, I put malignant hypothermia, which is an absolute contraindication, obviously, Mm. and then the pressures. So C... yeah, sorry. Yeah, what was that mnemonic again? Uh, sucks causes him immediate muscular pain. Okay, what was P? Uh, so P was pressures, intraocular, intragastric, and intracranial. And it's 10 how, centimeters of water, how, according how, to Stolting. <laughs> how ironic that you're, you're using um, sucks for rapid sequence and it increases intragastric pressure, which, which yeah. then cause aspiration. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I say, never seen it. <laughs> So that's good. So hopefully that's, you know, just covering briefly some of the points of difference, some of the high points of each of these agents um, and their doses and their durations. Um, and, you know, just some of the reasons why we'd use some or the other, and hopefully that helps. And, and look what we will do. Uh, why don't we give a brief table or some information in the story notes as well, just so people can look at the doses onset offset in general terms. So you've got this information available to you. So we've covered the basics of neuromuscular blockers in this episode. Um, we'll continue to cover more detail, I guess, as we go on in this podcast. If there's anything you want to know about more in more detail, please don't hesitate to contact us on anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com. And in the next episode, we'll continue with um, common drugs that we use in anesthesia and we'll be talking about opiates. So until next time, we will see you soon. Thank you. Thanks very much. See you next time.